This is the Marriage Bites Podcast, Episode 70, New Marriage, Same Couple, with Josh and Katie Walters. Welcome back to the Marriage Bites Podcast. Today we have two amazing guests, Josh and Katie Walters. They are here to share their story about how they rebuilt their marriage and came back even stronger after infidelity. If you haven't experienced infidelity, we still think you'll find their story inspiring and the things that they share can help any marriage become stronger and more resilient. Their new book, New Marriage, Same Couple, comes out next week. It's a raw and gritty love story with practical tools for rebuilding a trusting relationship after the pain and betrayal of infidelity. So be sure to check it out. Without any further ado, here's our interview with Josh and Katie. Welcome, Katie and Josh. Would you please introduce yourselves? Yeah, Jay, you want to go ahead? Sure, yes. So uh, my name is Josh, (laughs) and uh, Katie is Katie, obviously. (laughs) We've been married for uh, just over 20 years now. We have seven children, which, random fun fact, we both uh, had always wanted seven, and on our second date, uh, it was the it was the make or break question. I I went home and told my roommate after our first meeting I was going to marry that girl, and so uh, went out one time. And on the second date, I was like, "Hey, I'm not trying to scare you here, but big question: How many kids do you want to have? Say your number on the count of three. And so one, two, three, and we both said seven. So that's <laughs> kind of been the uh, the the biggest blessing slash. Uh, craziest part of our lives, but we uh, live in Charleston, South Carolina, been on staff at Seacoast Church for about 15 years now, and Katie runs a business and nonprofit that we work with called Francis and Benedict. Kate, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we, so about eight years ago, we started Francis and Benedict. It's a fashion line out of Togo, West Africa, but we sell clothes and then we use the profits to go back to the women there who made them. Uh, probably as it should be, not really a foreign concept, but we just do things that would um, benefit their lives. They're in a third world country. So we provide education, housing, nutrition, healthcare, and work with their kids, have a child development center. Our daughter, our second daughter is actually living over there. She graduated and moved to Togo um, for the semester until December. So a huge part of our heart is in Togo, West Africa. And now our actual heart (laughs) is living in Togo. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that's Francis and Benedict. And yeah, we, um, like Josh says, we've been here 15 years. I, I've been on church staff too, but my role has changed multiple times as Francis and Benedict has grown. That is amazing. I love that. Yeah. It's been exciting and adventure and learning all at the same time over and over again. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. We understand the big family concept or idea. Seven kids. We have six. Oh, you're in it. Yeah. Yeah, we're in it too. And we've been married almost 20, we're getting up close to 23 years. Yeah. Sort of. Awesome. Kind of in the same boat. Yeah. Oh, you definitely are. How old are y'all's kids? What are your ranges? They're range from three to 21. Oh, exactly the same. Oh, that's amazing. Really? That's wild. Yeah. Cause we're two to 20. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Same. Uh-huh. It's so good. Exciting to connect with you guys. That's just, that's awesome. Yeah. So we hear you are, have written a book. Yes. Um, I'd love to hear more about that. Yes. Yeah, so the book is called New Marriage, Same Couple. It releases on January 9th, 2024. 
And it really is the real, raw, kind of grittiest parts of our love story, which were painful. And we can talk more about that today. Mm -hmm. um, but then more than that, where we're really hoping it connects with every single marriage, whatever season they find themselves in, but especially those marriages that really need to start again. And we always say we think everyone needs a second marriage. It's just that you can have it with the same person. You know, you've married multiple versions of each other over the past 20 years, I'm sure. And um, so this is our story of rebuilding from kind of rubble. And then once God did so many miracles and we were able to rebuild our marriage with um, some vision and people that have helped us and walked with us along the way, then we started to counsel couples. So for the past 15 years, we also were given the opportunity to just meet with couple after couple because we kind of became the it couple if you had walked through betrayal or heartache, hurt, mm -hmm. things like that. So the book is a lot of the practical tools that we have used with couples um, in these sessions or tools that we've seen have actually helped and improved their marriage too. So it's not a heady theological book. It is actually a raw, gritty love story, but with some practical um, tools for rebuilding. Mm -hmm. Jay, what else would you say about it? I don't know that I would add anything to what you shared more a uh, story of our journey and the things God taught us along the way. And I guess one thing would be just for our uh, journey and the why we wrote the book, like as we uh, would sit down with couples or as people got to know our story, we just realized how many people are either at a stuck place, hard place, want to grow and don't quite know how. And um, we would be going to meet with couples. You know, once we got all the kids down, we would meet outside of some coffee shop at nine o'clock at night or, you know, and, and we could do that four or five nights a week and just realize, man, we don't have the, we don't have the capacity just to be able to sit down with, with this many couples, but the need is definitely there. And so in a lot of ways, the book is, is our desire to grab a cup of coffee and spend a couple weeks with a lot of people that we may never get to know, but we think the the principles in the workbook will help couples wherever they may live on the map to at least walk through it and grow from it. So that's fantastic. I, I really like the name new marriage, same couple. And we obviously haven't read the book, but we read the marketing packet and it seems like a really, really interesting concept. I know what's compelling for me is that I feel like we have been on that same journey. Mm. I mean, different than yours, but from where we were at the beginning of our marriage, there were things that weren't as healthy as they could have been. And we've had to kind of reinvent our marriage as well. Yeah. And some of the same things that I read are some of the same things that we have seen and gone through. Mm -hmm. And so it was really, it was compelling. I, I'd really like to read the whole book once it comes out. Oh, that's so good to hear. Yeah. We, we truly think the principles apply to anyone in any season, but specifically those, you know, who are in these deep seasons of pain or feel like they're, they just need to give up and start again. Um, you know, we really hope that it encourages and brings hope to them because if God did it for us, we really believe he can do it for any couple. You know, we were at probably the lowest place that you can be um, in a marriage, but these principles, they apply all the way across the map. You know, it's built on this concept of stay, um, don't let your worst days be your last days. And so the principles around stay are start with me, take quitting off the table, allow others to be a part of your journey, and then yield to vision. And those are broken up, broken down into really practical tools around each of those concepts. And so I love that you guys do relationship coaching. And that's what we found so much for couples is that they they may know in theory 
that God could do immeasurably more in their marriage, that they could stay together, that they could have the marriage of their dreams, that they want the marriage of their dreams, but how to take those action steps to start that building process yeah. is what we're you know, hoping that the the book is full of. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I know with us, there's times when we would, we could identify the problem, but we just felt stuck as well. We didn't know how to move forward. Yeah. It's like, we know what's going on, but we just didn't know how to move forward. And I think, I think over time and the various ways of getting help, I think we, we have began moving again. And so I really like, and I like the stay principles. Those are really, really, really good. Mm-hmm. We know that there's been some infidelity. Um, we know that you've stayed together during all of that. But I'm curious what you think is the difference between the people who are able to stay and like overcome and not blame their spouse, but to self-reflect. And then like, what is the difference? What is the thing that makes the difference between the people who can stay and make it great and those who either just decide to settle for whatever they have or or not stay at all? That's such a good question. I'd love to see how Josh answers that. It's hard to put <laughs> it down to one thing, but I'll let you give it a shot. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know that I would. I would say one thing, but I do think there are several things. First and, and foremost, I would just say God, like that's, that's on God. And that like, ultimately, I think he, how, how people make it apart from God, I don't know anyhow, but I would just say in this case, like, man, pretty much every principle from the book and just the one carrying us through, through the hard days and, and bringing love and grace and truth. And ultimately this is a God story. And so I think first and foremost, how people make it, man, it's God. Mm -hmm. Secondly, in a more like practical sense, I think it's two people willing to work. I think oftentimes the couples that don't make it, there's maybe one, one spouse who is maybe in either party, either the one that was hurt or the one that wasn't faithful. Um, but they're willing to work. And, and if the other isn't, it just doesn't matter how invested or passionate or, you know, committed they are to building something new. It, it really takes both people. And you don't have to kind of both be at a hundred percent, I think in our story. And that's where the the name of the principles really come from in terms of stay. One of the chapters was a, of Katie's kind of prayer, God, you can have my feet. Like her heart was far from me, uh, but she was just telling God, like physically I'm going to stay. And so, but if, if I was willing to work at a hundred percent, I think Katie was for a season there, 50, 50, Mm -hmm. you know, still trying to figure out does she want to stay? Does she want to go? Does she love me? Is, can something good come, you know, but, but there was, there was something to work with. She wasn't, she wasn't all out. And so I think, uh, Two couples willing to willing to work is a big part of it. And then, well, what would you say, Katie? I could go. I, there's a lot of different pieces, but I could go on and on. I would honestly agree with those because I think once you say the word two couples willing to work, and just like you said, no marriage is 50-50 or 100-100 at all times. But for me, you would not like to think that a lot of our reactions or defense mechanisms can boil so simply down to fight or flight. You know, it seems too simplistic to say that. But if you look at some of the core reactions that we have to either fight and go in and work for something or to flight, to abandon, to lose hope, to be discouraged, to retreat, 
And I think for me, the reason why giving God my feet in that moment was so important, it was, it was the little bit of fight I had that was needed to stay the course because everything in me wanted to flight. It just wanted to abandon um, the best gift that God had given me and abandon the work. Because to me, a lot of the work involved what I was feeling at the time was so much shame. And, um, and then rebuilding trust at the time could have felt like control, you know, when what I wanted to do was rebel or to have my own way. Mm-hmm. And, um, but that work of vulnerability, of trust building, of accountability was, was really my work to do you know, my internal work to realize how how did I get there? And then Josh had his own work, you know, the work of forgiveness of truly starting again. I was about to say the the part of this in terms of what makes the couples that make it stand out from those who don't, I really do think it's like the principles of the book. Ultimately, it's, it's ultimately God and two couples willing to work. But when I think about the couples that don't make it us start with me, there's generally a a victim and a, and a hero, like he or she did this. And I was the one that was faithful and they don't take or see any responsibility on their part for the, the culture or the environment that they created that allowed them to get to this place. Like he or she is wrong. I'm right. So start with me is just acknowledging like, ultimately this was a decision Katie made, but as the head of our home, I had created an environment, a culture, a work week rhythms, like, had I been really shepherding her heart and she'd been first in my life, like there would have been no space for consideration of anything else, you know? So there's on some level, the opportunity for everybody to start with me, take quitting off the table. Why do some couples make it and some don't? Because man, they leave the back door cracked. And if divorce, not just in concept, but even just the word used is at all an option. Um, It's, thrown out. It's something couples warm up to considering separating, practicing life without actually being around each other. People leave in their hearts long before they leave physically. But by taking quitting off the table, period, like, man, that's a big reason couples don't leave. Allow others to be part of your story. (laughs) It's like I could talk through, I could talk through the whole book, but I really think uh, in terms of why do some couples make it and some don't, from our story and seat anyway, it's the walking out of these principles that you know, we didn't, we didn't know, and, and we're not the experts on, but by God's grace, man, we, we lived them out and they're what held us together. So. Mm. So in situations like this, a lot of times there's a lot of blame happening. Mm -hmm. So Katie was the one who was unfaithful. Um, So it would have been easy for Josh to blame her. It would have been easy for her to blame Josh, or it would have been easy to blame yourself. Each of you could have blamed yourself in different ways. So I'm curious, what was the key that got you out of wanting to just blame each other and into like working together rather than fighting with each other? That's so good. Well, I I would just say, you know, off the bat that it, it's so complicated in any marriage. Every marriage is complicated, you know, and in every story, it's so unique. So while it seems like we're saying, you know, start with yourself, don't blame others. The truth of the matter is there was a lot of blame you know, happening, a lot of blame shifting happening for me for a long time. And when it first happens, the initial reactions, both of those things happening, you know? Um, And so these are the principles we learned through staying the course and just starting to, you know, part of our story was we were in about six months of no man's land. When I confessed to Josh, he told the church on Monday what had happened. And they asked him to preach his last message Wednesday and me to never come back. 
and at the church. So we were immediately cut off from a church family, a pastor, and we started trying to get counseling and our counseling just wasn't great. You know, oftentimes you go see counselors, it's just not a fit. And so for us, we spent about six months um, really deciding we want to make it, we want to stay together. Again, we think we attribute all that to God, you know, his voice to us, his love over us. Um, but those six months, it was really hard for us to get any traction. And I just say that to any couples that are, you know, that something has just happened or they found themselves in a really difficult season. These principles do take time. It's like cultivating a ground, you know? And so it, it took us a while to really start seeing traction and start to realize, um, these attributes of ourself that were happening. The only thing I would say to that is in terms of the six months, and I don't, you know, you go through something traumatic and ask yourself, like, could I do that now? Mm-hmm. You know, I, who knows? I think God graced us for what we needed in the season that, that we were in. But I would say out the gate for whatever reason, and I wouldn't have known it was in me and ultimately attribute it to a God thing. But like, it didn't take me six months to decide if I was gonna, you know, stay or if God could do a new thing. Like, that's true. From go, I wasn't going anywhere. I was going to fight for, work on, believed God could do it. The emotional journey was was all over the place. The the anger, the hurt, like everything was a mess. But in terms of resilience, like it took Katie a while to decide and and fully and commit and invest to the healing and rebuilding. But I do think that was a part of the piece, like having her invested at some percentage to work, but having me kind of as the driver in the sense of, I am not going anywhere. God can absolutely do this, mm-hmm. you know, just committed to, to sticking around anyway. Mm-hmm. What was the thing that helped you see her as she is rather than see her for the things that she had done? I think that was probably the biggest, yeah, the biggest God work, even, even to your last question, the, the verse that came to mind was, um, uh, Jesus praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And I think, I think, uh, you know, if you got up in the night to get a sip of water and the lights were off and you stub your toe on the bed and scream and wake up your husband, like he can't get mad at you for like deeds done in the dark. You know, it's like if you're, if you're in a dark place, practically, mentally, spiritually, and it leads you to doing things that, that are not who you are you know, then it's, it's difficult to uh, tie that to who you are, you know? And so I I think uh, ultimately that was a a God thing where, and like, man, I, and as a pastor, you would think I just spend time with God all the time, right? But that's, that's not the case, you know, seven kids and work and life and it's busy, but in that season, man, he was the only thing that kept my mind right. And so, man, I was, reading the Bible and journaling and praying and, and seeking wise counsel more than ever. And I, and I consequently felt like I was hearing from God more than ever. And so how I did that was ultimately God kind of counseling me through that as I'm journaling, reading, praying about how, how I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, where my mind's at. One day he uh, reminded me of her name. Catherine means pure at heart. And it was a very real line who, uh, what she did is not who she is, mm-hmm. you know? And so I feel like he 
he separated this act from who he created her to be. And so there was a, a good stretch where I was the one reminding her, speaking into her, like who he created her to be, who she was. This is not who she is. And so really, I'd, I would just say revelation from God, <laughs> like time, time spent with him and him helping me like hear and see her for who he created her to be, separating her from this act. And that's where start with me is so important because ultimately in any marriage, it's like if you really think that I don't have any like sin or behaviors or attitudes that are having a negative impact on our home, family, marriage, or culture, it's like, like wow, that's a blind spot, you know, because we all like obviously some more than others, but we all have stuff that negatively impacts the the people and culture around us. And this is an extreme in our story, but uh, I think it was, it was sweet for God to help me see my stuff and then also help me separate her from her stuff. And Mm -hmm. so, and I think it's important too, for people who, you know, maybe like you who were betrayed to realize that, that that does not mean that this specific sin or action was allowable or right or deserved or justified. Yeah. It's just as a covenant, when the two become one and so, and something happens, any kind of crisis point in your marriage, it's an indicator of health. So it's an indicator of covenant health. You know, it would be like if your spouse ended up getting a heart attack and going into the hospital, you know, there's nothing that you specifically have done to cause that heart attack Potentially, you know, but we've created these environments for each other. And even as Josh said earlier, like, you know, as the head of the home, I had steered the ship here, whatever Christian language we say sometimes for the leader. The same is true with many couples we've walked through where the woman was betrayed because she she also is responsible for cultivating a culture in the home. Not that she's created something that's justified sin or action on the other person's part, but that we could just both take a minute without the shame, without the blame um, to really look at what kind of environment have we cultivated, specifically in betrayal, where have our lives not been integrated? You know, where have the desires that you've had outside of our marriage, I have not known about those, us be able to work towards it, you know, those kind of conversations um, without shifting any kind of blame. And that I think is really difficult for couples that have been hurt, you know, and wounded to be able, um, to start there. I tell Josh all the time, I cannot imagine how he started with me. I really can't because I've felt the stings of betrayal just in dreams I've had about him cheating on me. And I am filled with anger and, you know, I, I'm filled with it and I know it's, it's just a dream, but it can happen and come on me and take over my whole body. So I can't even imagine putting myself in his shoes, you know, um, when someone has been hurt like that and they're filled with all kinds of emotions to then put those aside, to look at the covenant health, the family, the relationships, the dynamics of the marriage. But I do think it's vital and it's, you know, it's like we're saying there's work to do on both parts. Yeah. I feel like I could go off on a tangent on a lot of things you guys said. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. It just sounds like Josh, it sounds like, well, both of you really had to live by faith there for that first six months. Mm. And, and you didn't, you probably didn't know where things were going, but you were going to, you were trusting to follow God and, and his wisdom. And, and man, that had to take a lot of strength. 
So, yeah. and I would say, uh, even in terms of like take a lot of strength. I, when I look back on that season, on, honestly, I feel like way more fragile and weak than strong. <laughs> but but it's to where like the verse it says in our weakness, his powers made perfect. It's like man, I've I've got way more memories of me like crying in the dark than uh you know some imagery of strength that comes to mind. And so right, I I think. Well, there's the way the world portrays strength, right? Big muscles and fearless. Yeah, that's right. But I'm telling you what, the more I, the more I, I go through a lot of dangerous things with my employment and I see a lot of scary things and Mm. I'll tell you, I feel like I have strength to go through them. That doesn't mean that you are not scared that you don't cry. I mean, think about what the messaging today is for men and crying. Mm. If you're a guy and you cry, you're a weakling. Well, that's not true, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can be very, you can be a very strong man and still cry. Yeah. So I think, I mean, even look at how people portray Jesus. Sometimes he's portrayed as a weakling. I don't think he was a weakling. I think he was a strong, courageous man. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I don't know. I I think, even though you may not have felt strong, you obviously was. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he definitely is strong in faith, strong in faith and strong in conviction. And that was a really important and critical part of our story because that was not the areas of strength I'm in. I heard this guy say the other day that his grandmother has a stubborn faith. And I thought I loved hearing him say that. And I I felt like that it was a testing. It was really the enemy shaking our house. And I did not feel like I had that stubborn, strong faith that maybe I had talked a big game about, but really wasn't rooted there. And he definitely had when, you know, when things were being shaken, you can see who has certain strengths. And that was a gift to watch in that time because it opened me up to seeing that as a strength for both of us. Part of the rebuilding is you're rebuilding on each other's strengths and you're going to go to a new place. But for us, um, me specifically, even even learning more, being curious more about his specific personality and temperament and the way that works with me and how that is different than me, but meant to be that way from God helped us mm-hmm. to grow to new places, yeah. you know, to realize where each other were strong and that we are going to build on those foundations, mm-hmm. the strengths of each other. So your, your church that you did belong to that kicked you out and then I guess demoted you, Josh, how, how long had you guys been in that church? About five years. Okay. As I was reading through um, what what I read, I I don't know. I was baffled. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to bash on that church. It was just interesting how I mean, even you, Josh, seemed to be punished for what had happened. Um, but you're both punished for what had happened mm-hmm. by the people who were supposed to be putting their arms around you and and helping you through it. And, and maybe this is I don't know. If, maybe we'll keep this in. Maybe we won't. But I'm really curious. You know, the difference between that congregation. Versus the one that you moved to that seemed to, at least maybe I'm reading between the lines too much, but they seem to really put their arms around you and really bring you in and really try to help you. Maybe you can speak to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, I think looking back, that's one of those, um, just the kindness of God in our story, because ultimately like one of my strengths and weaknesses in some ways is that I'm, I'm loyal to a fault. Um, you know, we had, we had been praying for a while to, for another door to open 
we kind of wanted to go to a different church and like nothing was really coming about. We hadn't really made a move. And so I look back now, we had drive to Charleston for the day and dream about, I mean, every year we would make like, what does the next five years look like? And Charleston was on our, mm. our wish list and it might as well have been Germany. I mean, once you start having kids moving mm-hmm. two hours up the road to a place where you don't know a nanny in sight, you know, it's just like, it felt, it felt so hard. And so, so looking back, would we have ever made the move? I don't know. But man, being able to be pushed to make the move and it being a season of brokenness forced us to move without any posturing or pride. It's like we were moving to the place we had always wanted to live in a Hail Mary sense of like in a hurting, broken place where we were leaning on the church to care for us and and fully know us. And so I would say once we got on the backside of this thing, like it was the first time and I thought I was stepping away from ministry for good. I didn't know what I would do. And I realized while having stepped away that it was all I ever really wanted to do. But when the opportunity came about at Seacoast, it was the first time ever as a like professional that I felt fully known and accepted and loved. And so I remember the day they called to offer me a job. I asked the HR director, the guy, Mac and Cindy Lake, who had walked with us through the like toughest time. I asked him, I was like, Hey, have you talked to Mac? Like, do you, you know, my, you know, my story, right? Like, I don't want, I don't want this to be a surprise to y'all later on. And <laughs> he's like, yeah, but we know you don't worry. You know? And so, and now for 15 years, I just can't imagine. I remember in Columbia, the like young father, young professional, young pastor, feeling like I needed to be the guy and know the answers. And from day one at Seacoast, like moving here in brokenness, I think, yes, are they different churches? Totally. But I would say we are different people. And and in a lot of ways, that's what's changed our church experience. When you go somewhere in desperation and pain, asking for help without any answers, like it, it really lays a different foundation for how you experience the people and the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, as you talk about that, it, it sounds like God did answer your prayers. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of speaking to you, he it's like he prepared the way for you. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. But in an unexpected way, because when we think about our prayers being answered, we think something good is going to happen. Yeah, that's right. But sometimes that initially feel really painful or really hard end up being the answer to prayer that you don't necessarily see it that way. From the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that would be really difficult, especially at first when you're like, I trusted you, God, and now my church is rejecting me. I'm curious if you ever were sort of, what's the word, considered like leaving God. You were asked to leave the church, but how did you stay close to God when making the transition from one church to the other? Mm. That's a good question. I think there were there were moments where um, just given the nature of the circumstances we were in, it was evident that this this wasn't a, a cancer diagnosis. This wasn't a, you know, there's some things that happen that are devastating and it's hard to give any explanation for. This was a drift on our own part by our own decisions, a, a gradual move away from God in terms of the pursuit of like holiness and purity and standard of living. So like we had made our bed, if you will, and 
when all of this came out, in some ways, I think it was a, a return to God, uh, an awakening of like, you know, our, our day-to-day lives aren't casual when it comes to the reality of having an enemy that wants to steal, kill and destroy and the impact that can bring on our life. And so, so I think that's one, one reason, but then the second being that like, man, there's moments like a cancer diagnosis where all of life is put in perspective and my whole world is the, the only dream is finishing this race with Katie. And so when that was you know, a, a question mark instead of an exclamation point. And I realized like, I can't change her mind. I can't make her stay. I can't take us to a new place. Like everything I wanted or desired or was facing was something I had zero control to bring about. I think those are the like driving moments of, well, I didn't make myself. I didn't bring us together. You know, I'm going to turn to the one who did mm-hmm. and beg like, all hell to like, you know, like just all of me. It's like, you know, God, I'm giving myself fully hundred percent over to, which is ultimately a God thing. He hates divorce. Like I was pleading for something that I believe to be true of his heart. And so it's like, uh, I think it was one of those, man, when you get to the end of your rope, especially in one of these marriage seasons, like, man, there's a lot of places you could turn, I guess, but that, that's how we stayed. Yeah. And for me, you know, I would say through the whole thing, I never stopped loving God, but I think I was like, of course I displeased him. You know, now I'll just have to earn back his love, his favor. And realizing that I really had spent a lot of my life like that. Like, look at me, God, see me. Do you love me? Am I good enough for you? And so um, I wasn't shocked by the fact that I wasn't, (laughs) you know, I was like, well, there she goes again. But I think what was the wildest part to me and our story is that when something like this happens and you start to feel shame, you know, shame from our enemy wants to kill us. Like it doesn't want to just stop at Katie feeling like her people pleaser is broken and everybody has this picture of her. He really like wants us dead and leaves us like that voiceless, powerless, you know, wanting to die. And I had a night in my story that seems so dramatic, but a new piece of information had come out to Josh and my parents were all involved, you know, ours was public and really exposed. And my parents, we had told my parents that night and we were staying at their house and I was so full of shame. And I remember going down to the kitchen and getting my mom's knife out of the kitchen and coming back upstairs. And I just wanted to be out of this world. That's how bad I was hurting with who I was as a person, you know, and full of shame. And I was holding the knife and laying on my bed. And then I looked over and saw my Bible and I grabbed my Bible and just put it over top of the knife that was on my chest. And in that moment, as clear as day, I heard the voice of the Lord. And I heard him say, Katie, I love you. I have good plans for you. Like I knew this was going to happen and I still love you. And just hearing this kind, loving voice in my lowest point I realized like he is unlike anyone I've ever known. He's kinder than any Christian I've ever known. Any pastor, leader, husband, friend, his voice is kinder and, um, and more powerful, you know, because it's living and active and something we can hold on to. And I think that moment with me and, and the Lord changed everything because I realized if he saw me in all my brokenness and shame, like who am I hiding from? Why am I trying to put up pretenses with people? Why am I trying to pretend like I 
am some kind of woman of God that I'm not, you know? And so it really changed my relationship with him when you're that low and exposed and my intimacy with him, you know, and I look back on it and realize it makes so much sense how much barriers I had to legitimate intimacy because of what I thought I was having to prove or earn my way to, or be good enough for, you know? And so I honestly think like Josh said, a returning to the Lord was such a good, a good way to put it because um, neither one of us would have ever said even night one, how could God do this or what, you know, I don't know if I love God anymore, but I do think what we learned through the pain of it was how deep and wide and high his love is and how we hadn't even touched, you know, um, the true love of God, the true fight and power of God, you know, for us. So that all came from our story. The other thing I think about during that time was when Josh said the kindness of God from the church to fire him, which really doesn't make sense. You know, we, we've walked through a lot of different couples and churches and understand them coming off staff, getting healthy. You know, it doesn't really ever make sense for the person who was betrayed to be fired that week. Um, And the church is no longer in existence. I think the leadership was doing, you know, what they knew to do at the time. But what was the kindness of God for us is that I wanted our story to be as quiet and between the two of us and our couch as it could ever be. If there was anyone that would have been masterful at trying to push this thing under the rug, it would have been me. I mean, my biggest thing was that I was known as somebody who was kind, sweet, definitely not a husband stealer, you know? And so I would have tried with all my might to keep this thing between the two of us, but in God's kindness, it got so public so quick. And it forced me to come to terms with so much of my own hiding and pretense and people pleasing to face our pain, to treat it like it was a deadly virus that was going to kill us if we didn't radically make life changes, you know? Um, And we've walked with a lot of couples and they, they think that it would be less painful to keep it just between them. And what we've seen is it is not because that slower path, you know, um, is so much more dangerous and so much more deadly than just the being able to confess it, expose it, tell those around you that you love what's happened so that you can get the health and healing that you need, you know, so that you can prioritize health and wellness. And no one would ever look at their partner who had a heart attack and just keep them at home, you know, and say, we need to not tell anyone about this. No one needs to know. Um, And that we found that to be true in a lot of marriage stories too, that the more vulnerable, the more exposed that you can be, the healthier and often the quicker the path to healing is, you know. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of what Brene Brown says about shame is that it can't withstand the light of day. Mm. So when you're like, we got to keep this hidden, we got to keep quiet, we can't tell anybody, that's where shame lives because you have to hide that from everybody around you. Once they all know and you find that there are people who will reject you, but then you also find that there are people who will still love you even though they know what you've done. And that is a reflection of the love of God in other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That we think we need to hide it, but that's shame talking saying, don't tell anyone because you won't be loved anymore. That's right. But when we realize that we are infinitely lovable, then we can handle our secrets being known and still love ourselves. Yeah. So true. That is so true. And when we have, we talk about these practically, the tools for this in the book around confession therapy and, 
um, asking each other a question, can you handle me? And can I give you my 10? And just ways to continue to foster intimacy through vulnerability with each other. And it's one thing that we never realized prior to this you know, catastrophe happening in our marriage that we weren't giving each other the most vulnerable and raw parts of each other. But for me, I had women or I had certain people I would tell certain things to, they could really keep things in the dark, you know, but when you tell that one person, your covenant person, your 10, your darkest thoughts, your things that you're struggling with, when you ask those questions to each other, it changes everything about the relationship. And it really does then shatter the enemy because it does actually bring it to the light. It's not like you're over coffee and saying like, oh, I was having this thought about this man with a girl that you know is just going to like pat you on the back and be like, don't we all, don't we all have crushes? You know, people know how to talk about their most vulnerable parts to the right people that will keep them hidden. But when you can really expose in that covenant, it takes intimacy to a whole nother level. I mean, when I can tell him I've had this thought, I cannot believe I've had this thought. And he says, I love you. And honestly, I've had my own dark thoughts like that. Let's, you know, take it captive and try not to think about that again. (laughs) You know, that's not (laughs) who you are. But, um, but it changes everything about our intimacy when we take down, you know, those barriers that we keep up with each other specifically. So, and in our story, we never had a counselor talk to us about this concept of confession therapy, but it it really moved us along in our relationship when it came to rebuilding trust. Yeah. Because what happens in confession is you're telling them a piece of information that they did not know, that they might not have found out about, that no one told you you had to tell. It's just something that you want to give them. It's a vulnerable piece that you want to give them to start laying those bricks back down again of This is something that I could hide. It would be easier for me in this moment to hide. But instead, I want you to know this thing. And it starts to rebuild that trust. You know, for me, it would be like, I used to wear this headband for this man. I want to tell you that. Every time I put it on, I was thinking, what will he think of me in this? And those bricks that seem like they may be insignificant or small and really hard to say, actually become the most incredible foundation. Because just like I'm saying, the the idea of confession is that it's not forced. It's the two of you are getting to do this and build confidence in each other together, you know? And I think that's a really vital part of relationships. It's one that Josh and I work to not lose, you know, to not just keep going through the motions of life. The other night we had a question where we asked each other, like, what would take you out? What would be the thing that could put you in the paper or that could put you in jail? You know, that's a crazy question, but what is it for you? You know? Um, and just being able to expose those parts of each other with the, you know, are, are so trust building and strengthening and also brings things to the light, you know? Mm-hmm. I love that you have a name for it because I think what I see is couples will try to share things with each other, but they will share something when their spouse is not prepared to like receive it. Mm-hmm. And so I love that you have like a container for it. Like, um, so you can say, I have something to confess, or I have something to say, this is something that we've, um, uh, that we do where we say, I'm going to tell you something that's a little bit hard for me to say, or some version of that. Yeah. And then it prepares the spouse to say, okay. And we'll even say, are you ready to hear this right now? Rather than just springing it on them. And often it will result in conflict because they weren't ready. They didn't know that what you were sharing was close to your heart. And sometimes they'll be like, yeah, whatever, they'll brush it off and not know. So I think that is so important to like say in advance, I'm about to share something that's really close to me in a moment of intimacy. Are you ready for this? Rather than to just 
shove it in their face and say, here, do something with this, fix this for me, or accept me as I am. And I really love that you have this framework for it. So, but I'm curious what confession therapy looks like. Like I can imagine when you were deep in your experience, it must've been one way, but I'm curious, like, what does it look like now? It's similar to what you said, you know, we'll use this language of, Hey, can I talk to you about something hard tonight? We make a point to have this daily dialogue. It's what we call it. Um, in the book, we talk a lot about daily dialogue, um, date night weekly, and then departing quarterly. Um, but in this daily dialogue, usually we're walking our dog um, around our neighborhood, except for right now we're in an apartment and our dog is staying with our mother-in-law. So we just walk the two of us. <laughs> but um, we'll take this time to kind of walk away from the kids. And if some nights it's just light and fun and funny, you know, which is also really important in a marriage that it's not always heavy and serious. Yeah. But when it is going to be heavy or serious, you know, one of us will say like, hey, I need to talk about something hard tonight and or I need to tell you something difficult. You know, I'll use the words like, can you handle me if I tell you this crazy thing that I've been thinking about? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what it looks like. And then we just try to be as vulnerable yeah. and open as we can because we are really different. I mean, I know that's not shocking, but as men and women, I think we have really different struggles and points of pain and the things that will bother me or that maybe make me start to blame him or you know, take it to a bad place in my mind about who he is or what he's doing is so different than the things that trigger him, you know? And so we, it's really important that we're open with each other about those things, you know, not just our sin or proclivities to sin, or I had a bad dream or I had a dream about a guy, even though I don't tell him that too, you know, but it's also the confessing, Hey, when you did this, I was really thinking, you know what, all these thoughts, you know, that I know is not true of your heart, but it's what, it's where I went in my mind, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would say just to encourage other couples in this, like Katie leads the way in this area and that she will often be the one to say, can I tell you something hard? Can I, can you handle me? You know, whatever her language is. I would say 15 years ago when we moved here, it was the first time I was I felt fully seen, known, all my stuff was kind of out, but it's still much more of a challenge for me to, if I'm feeling, and, and it, it sounds silly, it's silly stuff to even say out loud, but like, if I haven't heard her say, I love you, like, how does a man say, I want to hear you say, I love you? Like, I, I feel like you haven't said, I love you in a while, you know, or like, uh, we haven't, we haven't kissed in a while. And I feel like you're not wanting to kiss me or, you know, like th- there can be these fairly small, like seem insignificant, but as a topic or statement feel like really close to you. And so, so I would just say as a, as a man, like feel really empowered and encouraged to let your wife help lead in this area. And when she is willing to put vulnerable stuff on the table, like, man, let it be an invitation for you to go somewhere you probably wouldn't have gone otherwise, because I would like to be that man. And and I would say also the only reason I think I really am is because Katie helps push us there. And when I can feel fully known, fully heard and, and be loved and then see her respond or encouraged to, you know, anything I've shared, it's like, that's the stuff that builds intimacy. But as a man, it can feel super vulnerable and kind of counterintuitive to get there. Mm, I like that. Yeah. And I also think like holding those things, like he's saying, holding them, you know, and stewarding them well, because they are so different for each one of us. Like some of his, this is probably not shocking, but some of his most vulnerable things might be around sex or our sex life or 
can we talk about this? I loved this or, and I could honestly be like, I roll at that. Like, oh, you were going to talk about it. You know, like we don't need to talk about it more or whatever. But the same thing for me, if I need to talk about something with my family or the kids or something so vulnerable to me that is not that big of a deal to him um, in the way I'm talking about it, you know, you could be tempted to just pass off each other's vulnerabilities. But the way you really build that is by holding them and knowing that for them to give you that information is a is a is a step, you know, a big step. Yeah, we've talked about that in previous podcasts is that when your spouse is telling you something vulnerable, like you say, hold on to it. Don't treat that lightly because that may cause them to retain that and not tell you, take away that intimacy. And um, I mean, we felt that in our marriage from time to time and it's not a great place to go. It can make you regress. Mm -hmm. So, and Josh, it sounds like according to your wife, I think a lot of the same things. So what I'm thinking you know, like, hey, baby, that was pretty cool last night. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so true. I know us guys are wired a certain. They, you, yeah. There's a lot of similarities. I'm not saying you're not complicated. It's just different. It's a little different than us women. We got, we got a lot going on. <laughs> yep, yeah, we are. And Josh, too. You said uh, those things, like the little things. You said they're silly, but they're not. And, you know, like, Hey, you haven't kissed me in a while, or you haven't done this or, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, I'm the same way. So don't, don't feel bad. <laughs> I, and I bring that up. Hey, you haven't been holding yeah. my hand lately. What's up with that? Uh-huh. So, so Josh, one thing you talked about was music. And I think, I think you put it as worship music as something that really strengthened you. And I feel like I have had maybe something similar to that. Can you, can you expound on that at all? Yeah. Uh, so I remember in that season um, in particular, and I would say that's that's when it really became true of me or for me is that, man, my thought life was just like in the ditch. It's almost like this movie screen in my mind would turn on and I could, my mind would work to resolve things I didn't have answers to. So things I hadn't seen, things I didn't know, um, this movie would come on in my mind and take me to this place of like intense anger or disappointment or pain or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And I, I like country when I'm working around the house, it's like, Hey, country music's great, but at best country music, you know, if your song comes on the radio can just distract me from whatever it is that I'm thinking about or working on. But there's something about worship music that, much more powerful than like distracting me can deliver me in a sense of lifting my mind and thoughts up from the rubble of whatever brokenness and circumstances I'm focused on and living in to helping me focus on it's like either your problems are big or your God is big, uh, but both can't live well together, you know? And so if my God is bigger then my circumstances bigger than this mess we're walking through living in mm-hmm. and I can trust him that, you know, I, I don't need to be so quick to call it good or bad because it might look bad, but God's going to bring about good from it. And, and there's something about worship music that helps me see God for who he is, helps me see me for who I am, helps reframe my, my problems. And so it was usually in the nights where we would get in bed and it's the room is dark and quiet and you're like alone with your thoughts or on the drive home from work when I hadn't, I didn't remember to turn the radio on or something. And it's just quiet in the car and that screen would come on in my mind that 
that that's when man worship music, I would have to drown out the negative thoughts and death going on in my head to help me, you know, find peace and reframe where my mind was at. I really like that. I know a lot of people, when they have troubles, they go to other things. They might go to substances, you know, whether it be some sort of drug or alcohol or pornography. But I think with worship music, I guess, you know, you, you said it, it would change your frame of mind. It would be uplifting. And I really think the spirit of God can really speak to you with that. Mm. I can think of uh, there's a group. I'm sure you know about them casting crowns. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a couple songs that, man, they just it's like shooting an arrow right to my heart. And uh, one called Praise You in the Storm is one of the ones I really like. Mm-hmm. Broken Together. I'm sure you guys know about those, but so good. Um, I, I don't know if we'll keep this portion of this in the podcast, but I had to ask you because it's always been something for me for, for years and years and years. I used to cut hay as a kid mm-hmm. and I'd sit there with just my thoughts and it, yeah, it's, sometimes your thoughts go to negative places and man, it just, it does it for me. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you bet. Well, thank y'all so much for having us. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. So if people want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Well, they can go to joshandkatiewalters.com. It's probably the easiest way. We're both on Instagram at just Josh Walters, Katie Walters. Um, I don't, when the book comes out in January, we'll have a podcast that um, will be airing. So they can check that out from our website. And we have a Facebook group that's our launch team that we're have incredible couples. We're just doing enrichment content for marriages, hoping to grow together. And that's called New Marriage Same Couple Launch Team on Facebook. And Francis and Benedict. They can also find out about FrancisandBenedict.com. I can't not say that. Great. And is your book going to be printed or is it just going to be electronic? Printed. And there's a workbook also that'll go with it. So it's through W Publishing. It will be electronic too, though. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for for coming today and having this amazing chat with us. You bet. Thank you for having us. We're excited to continue to connect with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. And and perhaps once we get your book and we read it, maybe we'll have you back on and have some more questions for you. Yeah. That'd be great. That'd be wonderful. We would love it. Great. Thanks for coming. Thanks, man. Okay. Thank you guys. Bye. Bye. And that's a wrap for this episode of the Marriage Bites Podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, share it with a friend. Do you feel like the fun and adventure you used to have has been crowded out by work, kids, and just life in general? I have put together 24 super fun date night ideas that will have you laughing and connecting in 20 minutes or less. So head over to andalynprice.com to get a whole bunch of easy and free date ideas. You'll be amazed at how a little bit of play can have you laughing and connecting in no time. Babysitter not required.